contracts. Intellectual property. Labor law. And much more. Make up the, the wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello, 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 and thank you for tuning in to the 13th episode of End Scene and Entertainment Law Podcast. I'm Tony Oikostas. And I'm Evan Narr. So, Tony, we're here, as per usual, a lot of entertainment news this week. Of course, the WGA strike is still ongoing. We discussed that last week in episode 12. Um, Taylor Swift announced that her album, Speak Now, is going to be released, the Taylor version, on July 9th, I believe. And the internet broke when that announcement came out. It was the, unbelievable. She announces at the Nashville concert, I believe. And and I, I don't know if that was the same concert where it was pouring rain. Because she usually does concerts where it's like three three days in a row. Yeah. Um, but there was one where it was pouring rain. And she performed until 2 a.m. Uh, whereas on the other side of the spectrum, Morgan Wallen canceled his tour. Canceled <laughs> I knew we were going to go there. <laughs> I, whatever. I have a vendetta against him. Um, can, canceled his tour. For the next six weeks, my fiance is very upset. Um, she sent me a TikTok where it's like, May 20th, I'm no longer doing anything because Morgan Wallen canceled. Um, <laughs> anyway, I hope he gets better, of course. And, um, you know, a, a lot to discuss, of course. So we, this week, are going to dis- uh, discuss the Taylor Swift new album release, the Taylor's version. And Tony and I are going to break down for the listeners. How does that work? What is the master recording? How can Taylor... You know, now that Scooter Braun purchased all of her master recordings, how is it that she can release these songs? And then we're also going to talk about the Alec Baldwin Rust lawsuit. And then we're going to cap it off with our three favorite Taylor Swift songs. She has quite a discography, so it's going to be very hard to whittle it down to just three, but we will do our best. Yeah, we're definitely going to try our best. And as always, Evan and I are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything that we say in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, and form. And anything that we say in today's episode is to not be treated as legal advice. So the first topic that we want to discuss is Taylor Swift. We know her. We love her. The multi-Grammy Award winner. She's currently on tour in her Eras Tour, which is kind of an homage to all of the different albums that she's released. But one thing that's really hit our news feeds is the release of Taylor's version of Speak Now. Speak Now is an album that Taylor released back in 2010, has iconic songs like Enchanted, um, which I which I really have fallen in love with. It's, it's a really, really good song and very catchy. But what does Taylor's version mean? You know, the, the whole story behind this is regarding Scooter Braun. But before we get into that, let's discuss what we've already discussed before, but just as a reminder, because it's very important. There's two underlying copyright interests in a song. You have the underlying music composition and the actual sound recording. And singer-songwriters like Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift, generally speaking, will have the ownership of the underlying composition because they wrote the songs. And that's very key in things like Taylor's version, which Tony will explain to you now in, in her ability to re-record songs that have already been released. So, Tony, what do you think of this? Give the listeners kind of an idea of how this all works in practice. Yeah, totally. And um, one addendum that I want to add to Evan's point, um, 
Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift owning the copyright is a very unusual thing because you just don't commonly see that in the music space whatsoever. Typically, singer-songwriters, or at least songwriters if you want to be more specific, will own the copyright or sorry, we'll write the lyrics rather, but they will hand over the copyright ownership to a music publisher. So um, already right then and there, we're in a very unique spot for Taylor Swift because essentially with the help of her legal team, she was basically able to not be held prisoner and held captive to Scooter Braun and you know his practices. So um, essentially, as uh, you know, Evan alluded to, you know, there are all these albums that um, Taylor had Taylor Swift had recorded under Big Machine Records, six in total. Uh, her debut album, Fearless, uh, Speak Now, uh, Red, Tempt- uh, Reputation, and 1989. These are the first. I think her albums. debut album was Taylor Swift. The debut album was Taylor Swift, right? Okay. So, um, so all these albums are under Big Machine Records, um, and Scooter Braun bought Big Machine Records. In, that includes the entire music catalog, including all of the master recordings to uh, th- for uh, Taylor Swift's albums for a cool $330 million. And so that gets to the other aspect of things when you're talking about music ownership, copyright ownership interests, as Evan alluded to. You know, you have the underlying musical composition, but now you have the sound recordings. Uh, remember, the underlying musical composition is the sheet music, the lyrics, the notes. It's basically the two-dimensional version of a song. The song cannot be made, the actual sound recording cannot be made without the underlying musical composition. So it's one thing to, to you know, have a song where the lyrics say, uh, uh, going to take a lot to take me away from you. There's a, there's a hundred things. Wait, actually now I got to, I, it's a, basically I'm reciting the lyrics of Toto's Africa, <laughs> but I'm kind of messing up there. Let me see. There's a hundred. It's not a lot to, oh my God. Going to take gonna, a lot it's to, gonna take, me to take me away from you. From you. There's been a hundred thousand ways of, oh man, I'm messing up here. <laughs> I love that song and I can't even cite the lyrics. I think you just you, you just mumble it. There's a hundred million more things I could never do. Right. I've blessed, blessed the rains down, down in Africa. Africa. Gonna t- you know, so, so there's one, there's the underlying musical composition, which is the lyrics, the notes for that song versus the way Toto performs that, the way that Weezer performs that, all these other bands that perform Toto's Africa. So... Generally speaking, when a sound recording is made, when the underlying musical composition is brought to life with a band, with musicians, with the singer, the record label owns the copyright to that. So Big Machine Records has always owned the copyright to it. Um, Scooter Braun, by purchasing Big Machine Records for $330 million, means that he's now the new copyright owner of these assets by, you know, by way of him being the owner of Big Machine Records. And that also means he owns the copyright to the music videos that Big Machine Records put out and also any artwork associated with any albums. Now, one thing that is really important to stress here is that a lot of uh, commotion and news came out because of Scooter Braun being basically a jerk. He, uh, There are reports of him acting like a bully. Apparently, one of the reasons why Taylor Swift decided to defect from Big Machine Records, have no affiliation to them whatsoever, and essentially go on her own to do these Taylor's versions is she was supposed to perform at the American Music Awards, and I think uh, he had denied the licensing of the public performance license of her songs at that award show in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Some might say there is bad blood between (laughs) them. (laughs) 
<laughs> what a zinger that's a dad joke classic dad joke and you're not even a dad but, uh, <laughs> so um you know at the end of the day these uh you know th- this generated uh i guess sparked the the idea in taylor's head to go ahead and re-record everything so we get back to the central thesis here how is it possible that taylor swift is able to re-record all of her music and it all boils down to exactly what evan said before she is the copyright owner to every last line of music, sheet, whether we're talking about a note or a lyric, what have you. Taylor Swift is the copyright owner to every single song that she ever wrote for her first six studio albums. Mm-hmm. Whether you're talking about Bad Blood or, you know, uh, 22, 22, I Knew You Were Trouble, uh, Wildest Life. Dreams, everything. You know, all of them, all of them. She is the copyright owner to all those lyrics. And because she's the copyright owner, that gives her carte blanche access to re-record it. She doesn't have to get work with a music publisher to get a license. There is no license. She is the licensor. She is the entity that she needs to work with. I mean, she, he, she herself and her, you know, me, myself, and I, I guess, like spun off that way. But either way, she's working with herself. It's her music. Um, now, probably the next question you're probably saying to yourself if you're listening to this is, well, Taylor's version is going to sound a lot similar to the real thing, right? So, you know, we're going to play a bit of a sample from one of her songs from Fearless. Uh, we're going to play the first The first song you'll hear is the song from the original Fearless album. And then we're going to use the alternative version that was in Taylor's version. So as you can see, both songs sound identical. Now, is she going to get in trouble with Big Machine Records? Is anybody going to go after her? Not at all. Under the Copyright Act, there's a provision under Section 114, if I'm not mistaken, that lays out that there could be two songs that sound identical to each other, imitations of one another, and that would not be enough to amount to any type of infringement claim because in the eyes of the law, they're going to be uh, viewed as independent copyrights. And even beyond that scope of it, uh, there's a clear-cut you know, clear-cut proof here that Taylor is re-recording everything with her own spin on it. Even if it does sound the same, it's her music. She's There is no need for Big Machine Records to intervene unless she were using the actual sound recording from her original album and incorporating it in these new re-records. Yeah, there are subtle differences. Of course, so much, so many years have passed by. There's a maturation in her voice, of course, so there, there's that. Uh, but I, I have seen like some YouTube videos or some TikTok clips that show subtle differences, like certain riffs or certain instruments that are being played where it's a little bit distinct. I also just, I, I just think it's so amazing. I'm looking right now at the cover album for Fearless Taylor's version. And I noticed that she's facing the opposite direction. In her, in her, in her original Fearless, she's facing left. And in the Taylor's version, she's facing right. And I don't know. I think the whole thing is pretty... Um, What's the word for it? Just uh, 
like signifying like a, a freedom sort of thing. And it's pretty cool when you go on Spotify and you see in parentheses like Taylor's version, like, ha, this is the one that I take ownership. And this is the one that I truly feel authentic about that. That's my version. And I don't know. I think like the subtleties that are in the, even the cover album, she knows exactly what she's doing. I, I find it very impressive. So I learned this week that Donald Passman, the goat of the goat law. Okay. Like if anybody is listening and wants to break into music law, you need to run and not walk to go get all you need to know about music. Um, his books are unbelievable, but I learned that Donald Passman was actually Taylor's attorney and really? uh, has been, I think, instrumental in this whole process of, uh, her re-recording, um, all these, uh, you know, older albums. So I think that's one thing that that's working in her favor. She has, you know, a true legend in the music law community. But also, you know, I'm I'm sure that she's aware that, you know, Big Machine Records, Scooter Braun, Shamrock Holdings, which is now the new entity that owns uh, a, a lot of the music catalog as well. Um, Scooter Braun ended up selling the music, um, a lot of the music library that or actually the entirety of the music catalog of Taylor's uh, music over to Shamrock Holdings, this uh, basic, basic uh, investment holding company. And in exchange for it, he uh, he gets royalties every time that music is licensed out or streamed or what have you. But either way, I'm sure that Shamrock Holdings or Big Machine Records, even Scooter Braun, they're looking off in the sidelines and they're just like shaking their head in dismay because th- this was such a, a mess up of epic proportions. Uh, I mean, bad business dealings on so many fronts um, also shows how, um, you know, how I, I think reputationally these music business companies can act very predatory and you know to your point when you said that you you smile when you see taylor's versions in parentheses i think everybody should because that is i mean she is creating a battle cry and empowering so many musicians and creators out there that you do not need to be you know chained to the system if you will that there is a world where you can authentically create IP and own it without having to, you know, compromise or sacrifice it, you know, for the sake of money. So it's it's very impressive all around. But I'm happy that she's got a third album coming out, three more to go. Um, I, I expect nothing less than exceptional quality music. I like how you use the the Taylor Swift um, reputation in your explanation there. <laughs> Listen, I had to go for the pun too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. So we'll see what happens with Taylor. I'm excited to listen to that album and see her at the end of the month. Let's move on to the next conversation on the Rust lawsuit involving Alec Baldwin. The next topic we want to discuss is the Alec Baldwin Rust lawsuit. So if you recall, almost two years ago, October 21st, 2021, Alec Baldwin was filming a movie called Rust in New Mexico. And there was a call to 911 that there was gunshots on the premises. And what actually ended up happening was the director of photography, the cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, passed away. And the the director, Joel Souza, was critically injured. And this really woke up the entertainment industry, no pun intended, This was a call to arms for all stunt coordinators and all people on set to really beware of using guns that could potentially misfire and kill people. 
And for what it's worth, it's important to note that this happened right smack in the middle of the disputes with IATSE. They were on the brink of a of a strike themselves. And there were union members from IATSE, which if anybody doesn't know, they're pretty much the union that's for like support staff, crew members, things like that. They were threatening to walk off sets over this uh, potential strike. So this is happening right at the cusp of it. So this was to uh, to you know talk about what everyone was saying about the wake up call. Most definitely, especially on the rise of something like that. Yeah, and wake up call like what props should be used. You need to be safe. You know, th- there's no reason why a prop should have fatal effects. Toward obviously, stunt doubles are aware of the dangers that their job may possess but a, a cinematographer I, I assume is not did not sign up for being in, in in the crossfires for lack of a better term so as a result of this baldwin and the armorer hannah gutierrez reed not the armorer from mandalorian the armorer <laughs> <laughs> this is the way uh they were each charged with involuntary manslaughter in new mexico uh, that's what the da announced so baldwin pled not guilty in february 2023 20, 2023 that's that's a mouthful (laughs) so he's clear so he's that there was a settlement but hannah gutierrez is still standing trial and i think tony you told me that it was in august yes her hearing so the preliminary hearing on the criminal charges related to her are uh were actually postponed i think they were supposed to happen around the same time um that uh, Alec Baldwin, I think, was supposed to appear in court around April or something like that. And that's ultimately how the DA ended up dropping those charges. So he's not going to be criminally charged. But August is this the date set for Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Yeah. So, and Tony, have, Tony and I have been discussing this a little bit. You know, can someone be held liable for this faulty gun that was going on? And, and Tony, you, you had a great thought on this. Yeah, I, I think that there's um, something that I, I haven't at least seen anybody talk about, which is the potential tort implications of something like this. So I, I do want to acknowledge one thing about the Alec Baldwin aspect of this, which is the reason why his criminal charges were dropped is because the DA indicated that the gun, uh, especially the trigger part of the gun, barely needed any pressure in order to fire off the what eventually contained what seems like some type of shrapnel or bullet, it's still unknown, I, at least not to common knowledge now, or at least from our research. So the shrapnel obviously was the heart of what killed Helen uh, Hutchins, but the trigger aspect of this was a very key component to this investigation. And I'm just going to say it straight up. Anybody that's taking criminal law knows that um, in when you have a criminal trial, a prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, That doesn't mean you have to prove it 100%, but it means that you have to have an overwhelming amount of evidence that without any shadow of a doubt whatsoever, you can't help but say it was that person. It's the defendant, the criminal defendant in this lawsuit. Uh, And it's worth noting in a criminal lawsuit, all the jurors need to say guilty. If there's only, if there's one that says not guilty, that person's getting off. Right. So that criminal trial relies heavily on the prosecutor bringing all this evidence. And, yep. you know, if you don't have all, you know, all the jur- jurors unanimously ruling for or against the defendant, you got a hung jury and then possibly a mistrial that then leads to a retrial and so on and so forth has happened way too many times in the criminal justice system, but that's just how it goes. So all that to say, 
that's the reason why we're having this discussion. I am sure that this what was discussed in the DA's office was we cannot prove Alec Baldwin did this beyond a reasonable doubt. And certainly the involuntary manslaughter charge itself is a very low criminal threshold. Um, I mean, I would imagine fourth degree, fourth degree felony, it says here in New Mexico. Right. And I would imagine that you just need to have like some type it obviously the intent, the mens rea here is probably non-existent. There is no intent whatsoever. It's just of course an, not. an accident accident, right? It's an honest accident, but it was enough to kill somebody. So even that, I think, was a lot of, you know, a lot was weighing on the back of the DA's office there. But now, because the DA said, oh, this is a faulty trigger, the idea sparked off my head. You got a product's liability issue on your hands. And so this leads then to additional questions, which is, are we having a discussion about the gun itself being modified? And that's what led to this, you know, the death of Helena Hutchins? Or are we talking about the gun already having this defect? Because that's going to be really, really relevant, at least on the civil lawsuit aspect of it. The the civil lawsuit is still going to go forward. And uh, Helena Hutchins' family has, you know, is going all in on that. No question. For wrong, wrongful death. For yeah. wrongful death. So does this does this relate to the fact that the the product, the gun, only needed a little bit of pressure to be triggered? Is that why you're referring to it being? Faulty. Yeah, exactly. Because that. Okay. I mean, I mean, the bottom line is when you manufacture any product, and I'm not, I'm going to exclude uh, guns for a second. If I were to manufacture a car, or a bike, or even like an everyday, uh, you know, supply like, uh, you know, a lighter or something like that, you know, the the brand, the the company, the manufacturer manufacturing that good has to exercise a specific duty of care to make sure that whatever they manufacture is not going to be faulty. It's not going to lead to any injur- injurious activity. Sure. Um, I mean, bottom line is a gun is supposed to be manufactured in such a way that there's even, let's say, a safety uh, uh, mode where you can kick it in and make sure that if you were to pull the trigger pretty actively, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to shoot anybody. Um, right. There are certain precautions, even with the chamber, that it can't, you know, it, it won't pressurize where if you put a bullet in there, even if it were an actual gun, that it's not going to burst up and, you know, cause some type of uh, harmful, you know, I- injury. I honestly think that that all that evidence is going to come out in some capacity, I'm sure of it, in the civil lawsuit. Now, we just don't have enough information about the gun itself. And I'll be honest with you, from a criminal aspect of it, especially from what I heard from experts, and I, I agree with them, the criminal investigation of this has been very sloppy. A lot of this has been sloppy. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I if I were Alec Baldwin's PR, I would not have done that interview with George Stephanopoulos. Even that is just, I think, um, n- not a good PR look because, you, you know, you need you need the you need to let the justice system do its thing, and you have to let the machine roll a little bit before you go all in trying to save face. Um, so beyond that, I think that you know, obviously, this must be a very big sigh of relief for Alec Baldwin. They did go back to shoot this movie. Um, I'm sure. It, it it's a very emotional emotional ride, right? You know, um, but either way, I think that this gun is going to be really, really pivotal to the civil lawsuit side of it, especially if evidence does come out that this was either a ill manufactured uh, prop or if um, this was modified in some way. Either way, it's definitely going to be pivotal to the lawsuit. And, and certainly, as I said earlier, definitely a call to arms for all movie sets and, and studios to 
not put your stunt people, your actors, your below the line, above the line crew in danger and use alternatives that, you know, CGI, we have, we talk about AI making, you know, Drake and the weekend songs. I'm sure you can digitize a gun to make it look authentic and not put people in harm's way. Absolutely. We've, we've heard this too many times. It's, it's such a risk. And, you know, I'm glad that I'm not glad, obviously the circumstance, but I'm glad that it brought this whole situation to light. And, and may, may I add, there, this is not the first time that something like this has happened before because, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Hollywood has been known to, you know, uh, at least certain filmmakers maybe like to do, uh, exhibit certain realism in, in shoots. And uh, there was another time where a cinematographer was killed on train tracks um, for a movie yep. about, I think it was Van, um, Van Moore, uh, was it Van Morrison? Or, or no, The Doors. It was a Doors movie, I think. Um, or Van Morrison, one of the two, but there was a cinematographer that was killed pushing a bed on train tracks and they didn't even get a permit, which was crazier. That was the crazy part. The city denied the permit and they still filmed anyway. And that cinematographer got killed. This was like around the late 1990s, early 2000s, sometime around then. Um, r- really harrowing uh, tale. So, I mean, yeah, this I really do hope, you know, I share the same emotion with Evan here. I do hope that this is a wake up call for, you know, film studios around the country. And our hearts, of course, go out to the the family of, of the victims there, um, and we hope that justice is served if it's deservedly so. I was trying to sound really articulate there, but <laughs> <laughs> I think the, I think the listeners understand what I was trying to say. Anyway, that will wrap up the discussion on Alec Baldwin and the Russ lawsuit. Let's move on to our three favorite Taylor Swift songs. All right, and lastly, we're going to talk about our three favorite Taylor Swift songs. And we spoke about this earlier. There's such a Rolodex to choose. It's it's very tough to whittle it's it down. Very overwhelming. Very overwhelming. She has so many hits and uh, just so many so many great songs that remind me of so many memories in in college and high school. So we're going to try our best. I'll go first. My first one, and I've been a fan of this since the album came out. The Lover album came out. Is Cruel Summer. And yeah, great song. And now it's getting a lot of hits on TikTok of like, you know, girls screaming, I'm drunk in the back of that car. Like this, this, (laughs) this demon possesses them during the bridge and everyone sings it together. But I think the album Lover came out in 2019. And this is her first time performing it on tour. Huge, huge song, very catchy. And I'm glad people have started to pick up with it. So Cruel Summer is my first one. My second one is Wildest Dreams. It's, of course, that rendition in Bridgerton is awesome, and we might incorporate that in our wedding, of course. Um, but it, it's it's such an emotional song. And when you're driving in the car and you're just blasting that on speakers, I mean, it just gets to you. The lyrics are great. She's such a great lyricist as well. Uh, Wildest Dream is my second one. And then lastly, and I feel like this may be one of yours too, so I hope I don't okay. steal it is Love Story. Did you choose that one? No, I haven't actually. Okay, great. That is a great song. Love Story. I mean, there's nothing... That music video is iconic, of course, with her looking through the glass and, and and sharing the notes and all of that. But it's just... It reminds me of college and, and, and high school and everyone just, you know, screaming the songs. And it, it's just a very, very catchy tune. And, you know, the, the message behind it is great. Like, you're never going to get better than me sort of thing. She wears short shorts. I wear T-shirts. She's your captain. I'm on the bleachers, all that stuff. Do you remember <laughs> the day where you wake up and find what you're looking for has been here the whole time? Ooh, look at that. <laughs> He's spitting fire, folks. Spitting the fire. <laughs> um, anyway, so those are my three favorite. What about you? Um, I, I want to add one thing about Wildest Dreams uh, really quickly. There is a video. I can't recall if I saw it 
in um in TikTok or Instagram, but there is an edit of Wild Wildest Dreams where it's Luke Skywalker in one of the original trilogy films. He's uh on like one of those like camel animals, whatever it is, yeah. with the two moons setting or the two suns setting. And it has over it Wildest Dreams. I'm like, oh my God, this is like it, it can like, it can go with everything. It can go with it, everything. It's, it's like it's like Lucasfilm should just like time warp her or time travel to the future to bring her back <laughs> to like the eighties to put that overlay. Cause you know, it, it's, it's so great. Um, yeah, no, th- those are awesome, awesome songs. All right. So I got, I, I got three that I'm sure you're a, a fan of yourself and I'm going to, I'm going to start it off with the man. Um, it's a, it's a great song I, and I'm a man saying that honestly, it's, it's a great um, empowerment song. I, I just, I, I like it. She's got attitude. She's got strength. I think that that could not have been a better battle cry for like her sticking it to Scooter Braun and, and uh, Big Machine Records. I, that came out in 2019 yep. with her Lover album. No questions asked. I think that that's definitely, um, and I, I would even say that that's a stab at even the industry at large. So uh, I'm going to go definitely with a bold one, uh, um, The Man. Uh, maybe you can call me a sellout here, but I'm going to go for Bad Blood here. Hey. Uh, number two. But you, you, like, you like the Kendrick Lamar version? I do love the Kendrick Lamar version. I love that version. But here's one reason why I love it. One word, Ninjago. They used uh, they used that song in the Ninjago trailer, yep. and it got me hook, line, and sinker. I want. I went to see Ninjago, and I guess it's just like it, it's like such a great song. Also, that pairs well. Great music video too. I I, th- I just think it's very dynamic, and uh, I, I definitely think that there's. Um, you know, just a great energy to that song. Her, her whole reputation album is just fiery. I love so good. it. So good. Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes. You say sorry just for show. <laughs> Man, dude, you're you're just sort of like I'm a telling lyrical you, I'm, machine. You're Taylor's, like ka- karaoke Evan. Is that that's ta- Taylor Swift apologist? <laughs> What's your final one? Oh man, <laughs> my final one is uh, it's it's a good one. I'm I'm gonna go to uh, back to December. It's just a <sighs> really really great song. Um, v- v- just classic Taylor. You can't really beat it at all. It it will be in the new Speak Now Taylor's version album. I am so eager to see how it's gonna sound in the uh, the new rendition. It's gonna I'm sure evoke the same core message it just and you know i think that there's something special about like country music taylor swift that you just don't see now because obviously she's more into like the poppy Pop, genre yeah. but it, it's a it's a great song it really captures her uh country roots very very emphatically great picks tony i have to say those are very um under the radar you know non-basic ones unlike the ones that i chose but it well, is what like it, bad blood is but either way yeah, yeah either way the man the man and back to december are not on the top of the list yeah. of most people <laughs> uh anyway okay so that will take us to the end of episode 13 thank you to all you guys for listening and joining us on this journey of course we have to shout out my cousin hunter zarin for the theme music that we listen to. Uh, and of course, we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of End Scene and Entertainment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at End Scene Pod. And until next time, End, end scene. scene.